All right, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning to those of you who are joining us uh, online as well. Now, from this Sunday onwards, I'll be doing a four-part sermon series on the theology of healing. Theology of healing. I had this sermon series planned since the start of the year after several members over the course of time asked for clarity and depth on this very uh, important topic, this very big topic of healing. And indeed, this is a huge topic. Tons of books have been written about this area. And even this four-part sermon series really cannot cover everything, but I hope and I pray that I can at least cover all the important essentials. So the plan for now is this, the tentative plan. This week, I will cover the source and the cure for sicknesses. And this is the sermon I'm most excited to preach about because on a rare occasion like this, God revealed kind of the outline for me in a dream. So I was half asleep, half dreaming, and then I had this dialogue with God in the dream. And so this sermon I'm most excited to preach about. Next week, we'll talk about some of the frequently asked questions. For example, how do we understand some of the Old Testament passages, the scope of healing, where is the place for medical doctors, so and so forth, wrestling with this topic of healing. Third week, which is our healing service, we will talk about supernatural healing, the place of faith. How do we pray for the sick, walking in divine health, and so and so forth. And then the fourth week, we will cover and wrestle with the issue of why and what if healing does not occur. Why and what if healing does not occur occur. So quite providentially, our old Methodist message uh, for this month, it's focused on healing. I didn't plan for it. I mean, I don't know how they plan for it as well, but somehow God has brought the two together. So the timing, I think it's God's timing as well. So let's pray as we dive in to talk about the source and the cure for healing this morning. Come, let us pray. Truly, Jesus, we thank you for the blood applied. It is in you alone that we can find wholeness, healing, and restoration. So come, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, come. Come and flood this place with the blood of Christ. Come and fill all our minds, especially as well for those who are worshipping online or hearing this sermon at another time. Oh, Holy Spirit, give us all the mind of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, today's sermon really can be summarized by two statements. It all begins and ends with a tree, T-R-E-E. And in between, we also encounter a tree. So this is really the summary of today's statement. Hopefully this will help you to remember today's uh, sermon. So these two very cryptic statements basically describe the biblical narrative, which describes the source as well as the cure for sicknesses. So let's start from the very beginning. It all began with a tree. It all began with a tree, or rather, if you think about it, really there are two trees. But the problem really has to do with one tree, one main tree. We know the story of how God created Adam and Eve, placed them in the Garden of Eden with many trees, but there were two trees that were specifically highlighted, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just in case you don't know the story, let me just bring out the Bible passage, Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. See, all kinds of trees, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Jump to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Of course, we also know how the story pans out. The serpent tempts Eve uh, she eats from the fruit of the tree. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, actually these two points are not really problematic because the Lord God earlier in chapter 2 says He made all kinds of trees pleasing to the eye and good for food. 
So that's not the problem. The problem is she saw it was desirable for gaining wisdom. She saw it was desirable for gaining wisdom, so she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and she ate it. And we all know what happened after that. Adam and Eve realized that they were naked, they hid from God, and eventually God had to pronounce a curse on them, and on the ground and on the serpent because of their disobedience. The curse can be found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from fruit from the tree from about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. You will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So the result and the effects of this disobedience are plenty. Disruption. There's disorder. There's a disorder of nature as well as a disorder of individuals. Our disorder internally, externally, is manifested in disorder of communities and relationships. Naturally, then, there'll be disaster, decay, deformities, disease, destruction, and death. Now, the logic actually is pretty simple here. As individuals make up families, and families make up communities, and communities make up cities and nations, and these nations are supposed to support creation. And so when the foundation is destroyed, everything that is above will naturally collapse. Humanity was supposed to take care of the earth, but when this, those who are entrusted with this sacred task fail, everything collapses, including the creation they were supposed to take care of. I suppose many of us have played this game, Jenga, right? And we had it at our fun fair as well, the mega version of Jenga. I'm not so sure how many of you saw it, but it was located at the other gate when we had our fun fair. So Jenga is basically one block of wood, uh, block of wood and then it was packed, uh, stacked, and then you slowly pull out pieces at a time. Eventually, some unlucky fella <laughs> will pull the last piece and the whole structure will collapse. And so when the foundations are slowly being eroded, naturally whatever is built on top will collapse. And so that's the same idea as well. When Adam and Eve, the foundation of the earth, when this, there is sin and disobedience, everything else above collapses. Let's take another illustration. In a supply chain, if there's a problem at the source, as we have experienced at COVID, through COVID, if there's a disruption at the source, everything else downstream is affected. And so that's what happened basically in the, in the area of sin. When there's this disobedience, the source is disobedience, there is disastrous effects downstream. So a nation, as Jason Wong taught us earlier, uh, is built up by families. He uses the Chinese phrase, guo jia, mei you guo, na you jia, mei you jia, na you guo. In other words, if you don't have families, how do you build a nation? If you don't have a, a nation, how can you support and protect the families? So the two are intertwined, interlinked. So individuals support families, families build communities, communities build the city and the nation, and then we together protect creation. But when the individual sins, falls, everything else collapses. And so when Adam and Eve sinned and fell due to their disobedience, naturally, as the very basic foundation of society, everything else collapses. And so at the individual level, we get stricter with diseases, sicknesses. We experience deformities. Our bodies decay and we make our slow but very sure way towards death. And as God told Adam and Eve, you will surely die. He didn't say you will die immediately, but you will surely die. At the relational level, we definitely see this disorder, this disruption in our own relationships as well. For example, we see how in a household, husband and wife quarrel and fight to be in authority. 
We see this in organizational leadership as well. Organizations, there's always a battle for power. There's a destruction of relationships and families. I don't think I need to give many examples of this. We live in this sin, full effect every day of our lives, whether at home, at work, or even in church. There are basically relational disasters everywhere. At the creation level, we also don't have to go very far to look for examples. We just look at global warming, how humanity continues to feed on ourselves, and naturally we see the effects of global warming, so and so forth. But when countries fight, the disasters, what happens can be even worse. For example, World War II, they used the atomic bomb. And naturally, generations of children born, after that, there's deformity. Whose fault is it? Would I blame God? No. It's obviously human beings, the use of this atomic bomb, causing deformities, diseases, destruction, and death. And so really, the source of sickness then really can be traced back to one single action, and that is the disobedience of Adam and Eve. But then some of us might ask, hey, but didn't God create this problem in the first place? Huh? Why God put the tree there? Why did he put a tree of knowledge of good and evil <clears throat> over there? Now, if you recall the temptation of Satan, he actually told Eve, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. But actually, it's very ironic because in Genesis 1, we were told that Adam and Eve were already created in the image of God, in the likeness of God. They were already like God. But when they ate of the fruit, ironically, they didn't become like God and it became worse, no longer looking like God. So some people have, uh, some scholars have interpreted this tree of knowledge of good and evil as a symbol of autonomy that, you know, Adam and Eve wanted to define for themselves what's good, what's evil when they ate of it. But if you ask me as an Old Testament theologian, I think it's a lot simpler than that. God does not want us to know evil. He does not want us to know evil. Of course, as God who is omniscient, He knows good and evil, but His character and nature is good. And he will never commit evil. But Satan, on the other hand, he knows what is good, but he will never do it. His heart is bent on evil. Adam and Eve, however, they wanted to make the choice. You see, God created Adam and Eve with the agency, the ability to choose. Why did God put the tree there? It's because we were created in his image. And that means the ability to choose. If we didn't have a choice, we would just be robots. And of course, as robots, you can't really blame them, right? If they do something good or bad. But as robots, we wouldn't be responsible for our actions, inactions. But that also means we cannot truly choose to love. We cannot love either anyone or God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. Unconditional love at its core requires us to choose. You see, God is unconditional love. His unconditional love par excellence, the best there is in the area of love and it requires choice. Because God will choose to say this, I choose to love you even though you are unlovable and you have sinned. You don't deserve it, but I choose. And that choice is an expression of our unconditional love. The two are together, the function are together. And so God had to put the tree there. It was to give humanity a genuine choice whether they wanted to obey Him or not. But we know again the consequence eventually is that they chose not to, to obey Him. They wanted to know evil for themselves, to make the choice for themselves. And it led to the wrong decision and the consequence of death. The next common question asked is, okay, so that's Adam and Eve, our God put the tree there, but why are we being held responsible for their actions? Not very fair, right? And to some extent, it's not really fair because, you know, we weren't there making the decision. But as I reflect on this biblical narrative and I ask myself over and over again, if I was there, 
If you were there, would you have chosen differently? Would you have chosen differently? From the way I read the scriptures and years of pastoral experience, I really don't think we would do anything differently from them. And I read of how the Israelites, whom God has brought out of Egypt with mighty signs and wonders, parted the Red Sea and so many things, I thought this generation would be the best of all, right? They would be so grateful and obedient to God. But no, the scripture tells us these were the most, the worst of all, Steve neck above all. In the end of this generation, only two made it to the promised land, that's Joshua and Caleb. When I read of New Testament now, Simon Peter, who walked with Jesus, you know, for three years, what greater privilege can there be? The best of all already, you know, Simon Peter, who said, I will never deny you, Lord. But in the next few moments, we see him very quickly denying Christ, saving himself. And so pardon me if I look around at myself, the world, the Bible narratives. Pardon me if I have of the opinion that if you and I were there, we would have done exactly the same thing as Adam and Eve did. We wouldn't have chosen anything better. Because essentially we are people who will not submit to God's ways. In short, we are people who don't trust God. We prefer to trust ourselves a lot more. So that's, those are the two reasons why I think, you know, this would have happened the same way anyway. So let me sidetrack a little bit now to explain why Adam and Eve didn't die immediately. Maybe that's a question you'll be wrestling with too, because God says you will surely die. But why didn't they die immediately? So this is an important uh, sidetrack. First reason is this, and we need to understand how sin works in our lives as well. James chapter 1. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So verse 13 actually also answers one of our earlier questions. God does not tempt us. So God didn't put the tree of knowledge of good and evil there to tempt human beings. No, if you have that thought, erase it from your mind. But he did it because of human agency. We need to choose and God knows everything, but he does not want us to know evil. But I want to focus on verse 15. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. The reality is that most of us, we don't die immediately from one sin, right? You and I are alive today, means it's true. <laughs> if not, we have died long ago. Instead, as one continues to nurture sin, one day sin will turn around and bite us and cause us to truly die. So James chapter 1, verse 15 uses the language, the metaphor of conception and childbirth. It's desire that conceives sin. It's desire that conceives sin. And Eve desired wisdom. That was her desire. She desired wisdom. She desired to be autonomous. But at the point in time, it is not yet sin. It is that, sin, that desire that is nurtured, that when that desire is nurtured, eventually gives birth to sin. When you think about it once, it can be a fleeting thought you may not address, you know, giving to the temptation. But when you keep indulging in the same thought, you nurture that thought, that desire becomes eventually sin. So the Bible uses the analogy of childbirth conception. How long does it take to nurture a fetus in the womb? Hello? Are your life? <laughs> Nine months, right? It's a long gestation period. There's a reason that God, God uses this in his word as a description. It's when we nurture that desire long enough that it gives birth to sin. And so what the scripture is warning all of us is very simple. Your original desire, the first thought that came in, 
may not be your fault. Satan could have planted that thought there. But it's when we allow ourselves to nurture that desire that eventually we will lead ourselves down that evil path. We think to ourselves, oh yeah, I should have that. If only I have more of that. What's wrong with having that? I've survived with it so far. It's when we keep nurturing this that eventually gives birth to sin. And then we cross the line and we commit the actual sin. But even then, the scripture says, sin itself does not immediately lead to death. Rather, it is sin full grown, fully grown, that gives birth to death. I remember one of those movies, uh, I used to watch sci-fi movies, right, about aliens. And then the alien will infest the human being. But at that moment, the human being doesn't die. It slowly grows inside and then eventually one day explodes, comes out, then devours the human being and of course others as well and they continue to spread sin or in new life forms, you know, more and more down the road. And so that's the illustration here in James chapter 1, verse 15. Desire itself is not yet daily, deadly, but it is when it's conceived and nurtured that gives birth to sin. But sin itself is not yet strong enough to kill us. But as we keep feeding the alien, the tiger, the lion, whatever, you keep feeding it, eventually it is fully grown and you will bite back on us. And so if we continue to feed our desires, the end result, slowly but surely, is death. The New Testament uses another uh, illustration, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. Now we are all paid a salary or wage only after you have worked, right? How many of us, before you start work, already give you the salary? No, right? Which boss will do that? No. But after you work, then you are paid the salary. And so the Bible uses this illustration. If you keep working for your master who is sin, eventually what you'll be paid for, your wage, your salary, is death. So choose for yourselves who will be your master. Will you submit yourself as slaves of righteousness to God? It brings life, or will you submit yourselves as slaves to evil and wickedness, unrighteousness, and reap death? So that's the illustration that Apostle Paul says. Not immediately, but surely, if you keep working for sin, the eventual consequence is death. And so that's the reason why Adam and Eve didn't die immediately, because sin is not yet fully grown. But the second reason, and the more important reason is this, is that God wanted to demonstrate His grace and love through Jesus Christ. And that's why He didn't kill Adam and Eve immediately. He wanted to demonstrate His grace and love through Jesus Christ. Again, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is not something you work for. It is a gift of God. It's eternal life in Christ Jesus. We work for sin. We are paid in death. But we look to God and He gives to us without us working. We cannot earn it. It is a free gift given to all who believe and obey. If Adam and Eve had died immediately, actually that's the end of the story. There's no more Bible even. <laughs> no one has lived to tell the tale to write it down. But God in His grace and mercy wanted to redeem the situation. He wanted to redeem humanity who was made in His image. He's not going to give up on His creation. And that's why He didn't allow them to die immediately or to eat of the fruit from the tree of life. Imagine if they had eaten of the tree of life immediately after they had eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You know what will make them? It will make them to become? They will forever be sinners. They are in a state of sin. They cannot suffer the consequence of death and they will live on forever. That means we will forever be enemies of God. 
And that's why God chased them out of the Garden of Eden. Maybe you think to yourself, why God so cruel to chase them out? Actually, death, to some extent, is God's mercy to us. Because this body has to die in order for the new body, the resurrected body, to inherit eternal life. So God, in His mercy, actually allowed Adam and Eve to die, to suffer the consequence of sin, that He may send His Son, Jesus Christ. But it's important to remember this point here, to experience death, to some extent, is God's mercy to humanity. And this is a concept I will pick up later on in the sermon series as well. Suffice to say, right now here, that while death is God's mercy to humanity, and especially to Adam and Eve at the time, it is not his desired end goal. Let me say that again. While it is to some extent God's mercy to us as human beings, it is not his desired end goal. His desired end goal for humanity is life. Life abundance. And that's why there's resurrection. Anyway, back to Adam and Eve, God drove them out of the garden, guarded the tree of life, so that humanity will pay the penalty of the sin through death, and after which, through the descendants of Adam and Eve, through the death and resurrection of Christ, humanity will be given this new incorruptible body to be with God forever. In short, since humanity caused the problem in the first place, humanity will have to solve the problem. But this time, it will come from a human being that is from heaven. The first Adam is from earth. The second Adam is from above. So back to this implication of uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that eternal gift, a life is a gift. We must understand that belief and obedience are two sides of the same coin. Belief and obedience are two sides of the same coin. You cannot just think that Christianity is just about believing that Jesus died and rose again, reciting the creed. Now the creed is important because it guts our faith to know that what we believe in is genuine. But mental assent, just believing in a statement of the truth alone, it is not enough. You have to obey if you truly believe. So let's give you a simple illustration. Earlier this year, I went to London for this Alpha Leadership Conference as I have shared with all of us. So on one of those days, I was taking the MRT or the equivalent of MRT, the tube, right? And they made this announcement over the PA system, there's a severe train fault. Passengers were advised to make alternative arrangements. So it was my first time in London, so I first time hearing this announcement. But I looked around me, everyone was still standing on the platform, chatting, talking. Hey, I think to myself, is this genuine or not? Is this announcement really true? For a while, I stood there, but the, cap, uh, the announcement kept coming. But then the people not really moving. But eventually, I decided I cannot keep waiting. After 10 minutes, I decided I think it's true. And so I left the station and I took a bus instead. So if you believe something, eventually you will leave it out. If you don't believe it's true, then you continue waiting there. <laughs> right? So the fact of the matter is, if you truly believe something, you will leave it out. Give you maybe a more extreme example. Most of us probably believe that a bungee cord is very strong. But when I ask you to jump, how many of us dare to do it? <laughs> right? So there is a big difference between truly believing it and believing it with our whole lives. And when Christ calls us to believe in Him, it is that second definition. To believe with our heads and commit our entire lives to action. The one who obeys is the one who truly believes. And on that note, we come to the cure for sicknesses. If the, cure, if the source for sickness is one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the cure for sickness is the other tree, the tree of life. And Jesus is that tree of life. In fact, he died on a tree. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hung on a pole. In the English Standard Version, it uses everyone who is hanged on a tree. In the song that we sang earlier, right, we talk about that tree. When Jesus died on the cross, on that tree. That is the solution, the cure for sicknesses. By the way, in case you're wondering, this quotation in Galatians 3.13 comes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. So Apostle Paul wasn't teaching a new theology. He was looking back at the scriptures and he said, Hey, Jesus bore our curse, our death, our sin, our sicknesses on the cross. He took our curses that God will give us blessings. And so since it was man's disobedience that brought about sin and death, it is only fitting that it is man's obedience that will bring about restoration and life. Christ Jesus, though he was God himself, and here he set us the example, chose not to decide for himself what's good or evil. He did not choose for himself what is the way that God has chosen. But the Father says, this is the way I want you to walk, the way of humility and death. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. And that is how we have now access to the tree of life. He chose not to use his own human wisdom, but to submit to the wisdom above. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 to 21 says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many, the all of us have been made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. The problem of sickness comes from the source of disobedience. And the cure then, naturally, is God's obedience through Jesus Christ. The law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, see, sin is always connected to death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we have covered a lot of ground today. Let me summarize here. The story of sin and sickness really begins with a tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the source of sickness is man's disobedience. That's the first Adam. The result and effects of disobedience are plenty, disruption, disorder, disaster, decay, deformities, disease, destruction, and death. So all these problems can be traced to one source. But thanks be to God, all these problems can be resolved by one solution as well. The cure is man's obedience. That's Jesus, the second Adam. And then, of course, all the curses are reversed. We have now divine order. There is divine health, shalom, peace, righteousness, life, and everything that is abundant. But between this source and the cure, it revolves around a tree, the tree that Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary. Jesus himself becomes that tree of life. And here I just want to sneak in the important point for all of us to think and really live it out. That this tree of life, can only be eaten in humility and submission. You cannot just freely eat of the tree of life now as sinners without humility and submission because that's the way of the cross. We must recognize that we have sinned, we have fallen, and now we choose to submit to God. And that's the essence of this tree of life. Thanks be to God as well. The story of restoration doesn't end there. It continues, but we have this wonderful picture at the end of the Bible, Revelation 22. Verses 1 to 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle 
of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing fruit, 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. God's end goal is healing. His solution was send Jesus to take the penalty so that healing might flow. You all know me for so many years. There are many reasons why I believe in a healing ministry. Not just because Jesus healed and wanted of the gospel story is filled with healing. Not just because I want to follow Jesus' ministry model. Not even because I've seen Jesus heal and have testimonies. But because primarily because I believe that Jesus has finished the work of redemption. He has put, paid the full price of redemption for us. To say that I don't believe in healing is actually to contradict myself. If I truly believe that Jesus has redeemed us, I have to engage in the ministry of healing. And I pray for all of us, all Christians really will come to this same conclusion, that because we all believe that Jesus has truly finished the work of redemption, we will go out there and minister healing. And so this first sermon really establishes, I hope for all of us, the most important foundation of us. We must be absolutely convinced that Jesus has paid the full price for our redemption, and that includes healing. Just give you a simple, you know, just illustration here. Are we redeemed from sin? Sure, unsure. The answer is yes, right? We have to believe we are fully redeemed from sin. But do we still sin? Yes. Does it mean that redemption from sin is not complete? Did Jesus pay the full price of sin? Yes. Are we redeemed from death? Yes. Do we still die? <laughs> yes. Does it mean that redemption from death isn't complete? No. So I find it strange sometimes that people say that we are not redeemed from sicknesses. It's a contradiction, isn't it? If Jesus died for our sin, we're not fully redeemed in a sense, but the redemption is complete, right? We still struggle with sin. If Jesus redeemed us from death, but we still die, but the redemption is complete. In the same way, we must believe that Jesus has paid the full price for our redemption from sicknesses. To believe otherwise is incongruent. Of course, later on in other sessions, I will address why and what if healing doesn't occur. But I want us to be very clear, it is not because redemption is incomplete or that it is not God's will. Those are not the reasons why we still struggle, struggle with healing. And so for today, really the emphasis for all of us is to return and focus our eyes on the cross. That the full price of redemption has been paid by Jesus Christ. The work is finished. It is finished. Jesus will never say something that is not true. It is finished. It is completely finished and redeemed for. Today we will also celebrate the sacrament of Holy Communion. And Jesus taught this in John chapter 6, verses 53 to 57. And so this, he is the tree of life that we must eat for the healing of nations. Jesus said to them now in John 6, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. 
So as we approach the Lord's table later on, let me invite the music team to come up. Let us give thanks that God did not leave us in our sin, <laughs> but rather in His mercy, He cast us out of His presence temporarily that He may send His Son Jesus to pay the full price for our redemption. We want to give thanks as we come to the Lord's table later on that Jesus truly is the bread of life. As we feed on Him, we receive the gift of eternal life. And all that accompanies eternal life, the work of redemption, if you have a need for healing, whether it's physical, emotional, relational, God is the one who is able to touch us and heal us. Come, let us pray. Father, I declare once again a renewing of all our minds that we will not make excuses for the realities that we are still going through. But help us to renew our mind according to your word that truly Christ has paid the price, the full penalty of our sin and he is the one who will restore us completely. Lord, help us to focus our eyes on you even as we sing this song of response. Lift up our eyes, our spirits, from our circumstances as we fix our eyes on the cross. Lord, I ask that you pour forth your healing grace to all of us who are in need. So, brothers and sisters, I invite you to stand as we sing this song. Keep your focus. If it helps you, look at the cross. Whatever your need may be, Let's keep our eyes focused on the cross and receive an appropriate healing in Jesus' name because God is good.